Thank you, Vince. Thank you, Pastor Renee and worship team. Did they do a great job this morning? Can we put our hands together for our worship team today? Amen. Hopefully you guys all, everybody have a good Easter last weekend. Had some time with, uh, with your family, with friends. Hopefully you had some food. Anybody have a nice ham for Easter? It was good. Anybody have a nice nap after the ham for Easter? That was me. <laughs> had a good time. Today we are going to continue in our Bible reading plan um, May 7th, May 9th, whatever date that is, make sure that you're here. It is the 7th. I'm just kidding. Uh, make sure that you are here, ladies, in the morning, fellas, in the evening. Uh, it's going to be a great time. You're not going to want to miss that. But we're going to continue today our, our Bible reading plan. Last week was Easter Sunday, and we looked at the story of David and Goliath. First Samuel chapter 17, <clears throat> excuse me, is where we were last week in, in kind of a different take on Easter. It's probably not an Easter message some of you have heard before. It might not be one you hear again for a while until we go through the Bible chronologically again in the future and, and the date aligns itself correctly. But talk about how that David in his victory over Goliath, how that in that story, we oftentimes like to make ourselves David, though we are not David. We are the, the Israelite army hiding in fear, and Jesus is David. David is a, a picture or he is a type of Jesus because everything in the New Testament is in the Old Testament. It's just there in pictures. You have to, you have to look for it. Everything in the Old Testament is in the New Testament. It's there in principles. And so everything in the Old is in the New. Everything in the New is in the Old. And so David, as a a, a type or a picture of Christ was given the victory, and he wasn't the only one to receive victory, but the, re the, the rest of the, the army, the nation received victory as well, and how that in the New Testament, Jesus stepping out of the grave on that, on that first Easter morning on Resurrection Sunday, not only was he victorious over death, hell, and the grave, but because he was victorious, we can live lives of victory as well. And so today we're going to continue in our Bible reading plan. Uh, on your way out this morning, if you need the, the May plan, if you want the printed handout, the ushers will have that. You can stop by the Welcome Center and get that, or if you want to find that, it's on our website and our app. But we're continuing in the, the life and in the story of David. David is, is probably the most prominent other than Jesus, because obviously all of the scripture points to Jesus and is about Jesus. But David is the most prominent character, figure, individual in all of scripture. In, in the Old Testament, there are 66 chapters dedicated to the life of David. That's almost one-tenth of the entirety of the Old Testament is dedicated to the life of King David. And, and today, as we, as we read, 1 Samuel chapter 30 is where we're going to be. Hopefully you have your Bibles. You can follow along with us. But we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 30. To give you some context up until this point, we've been introduced to David as a young man. Somewhere between the age of 12 and 16, he was anointed by Samuel the prophet as the next king over Israel. Saul at the time was king. David's anointed as the next king because Saul kind of started walking away from the Lord, doing things his own way, how he thought things should be done. So David's anointed as king, and last week we saw David as a young man come to the battlefield to deliver some sandwiches, and instead God had other plans, and he goes out with a sling and some stones and kills this Philistine champion, this Philistine warrior. After that, Saul gets jealous because everybody starts giving their attention to David, like, look at what David's done. He's just a boy. Saul's killed his thousands. David, his, 
tens of thousands, even though at that point David hasn't killed tens of thousands of people, they're singing David's praises. Saul, the Bible says, takes his eyes off of God and puts a jealous eye on David. And from that point on, it is essentially on one mission. His mind is focused on one thing, and that one thing is killing David. This threat to my, to my reign, this threat to my throne, I want to, to kill him. So what does David do? David runs and David hides. And he, he, he has an opportunity to kill Saul. He doesn't take it. He, he, he goes down to the Philistines. He lives with them for a year and a half, lives among the Philistines. One day he, he comes to the, the Philistine king, King Achish, and he says, hey, my people don't want me there. I really have no place to go. I've got these 600 men and their families. It's essentially David's band of misfit toys. If you remember the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special that was on TV, you had Rudolph and then you had Yukon Cornelius and then you had Hermie, the, 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 the elf who could make toys. And they're all just this, this group of misfits wandering around and they find themselves on the island of misfit toys where there's a Jack in the box and his name wasn't named Jack. It was like Charles or Joseph or he's like, nobody wants a Charles in the box. And so it's all of these misfit toys, essentially, those are the guys that David has with him. While he was hiding from Saul in the cave, the Bible says that anybody who had, who had debt, anybody who was discouraged, anyone who was depressed in life, they all came to this cave to be with David. And David's like, sweet. Like if I was going to pick a dodgeball team, this is not the dodgeball team that I would have picked, but this is the team that God gives David. So he takes these 600 men, he goes down to the Philistines. He's like, my people don't want me. Is it okay if we live among you guys? Now, the Philistines, remember, Goliath was a Philistine champion. This is the, the arch rival, the nemesis of the nation of Israel. It would essentially be like a Red Sox fan going and living in a home of a Yankees fan. It's just not going to happen. We don't get along. There's no way. It's not possible. And yet that's where David finds himself. And King's like, well, sure, you can have this border town, Ziklag, it's kind of out of the way, but you guys can live there. And every now and then David would come to King Achish and the king would ask him, where did you raid today, David? And David would say, we raided in Judah. We raided among my people. We, we plundered from my people. And the king was like, that's awesome, even though David didn't really raid there. He raided in other places. And so David's kind of playing both sides. He's like, I'm, I'm not in Judah, but I'm, I'm of Judah. I'm not a Philistine, but I'm living among the Philistines. And the king's like, well, if he's raiding his own people, then surely they don't like him. And one day the, it came to, to, to a point where the Philistines were going to war against King Saul and the Israelites. And so King Achish of the Philistines says, David, do you want to go to war with us? And David's like, absolutely. Like, hold on, David, like you were just 10 chapters ago fighting against the Philistines right. on behalf of King Saul. Yeah. And now, several years later, you find yourself going into battle against King Saul on behalf of the Philistines. Like what in the world is going on? And so they, they march into battle. David and his men, they march three days to the north to, to go confront the Israelites with the Philistines. They get to the battle and, and King Achish says, you know, David, I, I talked to some of the other guys, some of the other leaders. They really don't feel comfortable with you fighting with us. They, they think, and I know, I know you're not going to do this, David. I trust you. You've been nothing but good to me. But, but they think that if we get into battle, that you're going to turn on us and you instead are going to fight with King Saul. So for that reason, I'm going to have to ask you to go back home. David's like, I didn't do anything wrong. I want to 
I want to fight. Me and my men, we've hiked three days. We want to go into battle. And the king's like, but I can't have you here. So they turn around and they march three days back home. So now they're on this week-long journey with nothing to show for it. First Samuel chapter 30 is where we're going to get to today. And here's what the Bible says in verse number one. It says that three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, so they've just marched back from, from this battle that they weren't able to fight. They found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag and that they had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. Have you ever been there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You ever, you ever cried so many tears that there were just no more tears to cry? That's where David finds himself. Verse five says that David's two wives, Ahinoam the, from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. And David now was in great danger because all of his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. Remember, these are the these are the men with debt. These are the outcasts of society. These are the men who are, who are discouraged. These are the men who are depressed. These are the men who have a bone to pick. And now their families have been taken away. Their, their children have been captured. Their wives have been captured. And it's all David's fault. They start pointing the finger at David. And not only are they pointing fingers at David, but they're beginning to pick up rocks and thinking of throwing them very, very, very firmly at David. The Bible says this, but David found strength in the Lord his God. But David found strength in the Lord his God. I want to read verse six from the NIV, and I want to use this as kind of our, our jumping off point today. It says that David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Lord, we thank you for your word today. God, I pray that for those of us that come into this place today, having cried all the tears that we can cry, feeling distressed and feeling discouraged, feeling depressed and anxious, and we've allowed worry and fear to creep in. Lord, I pray that even as David found strength in you today, that we would find strength in your word today. Lord, for those that need to be encouraged and, and uplifted, I pray that you would encourage them today. For those that need to be challenged and corrected, I pray that you would challenge and correct us today. God, we open up our hearts and we give you complete control to do whatever it is that you want to do because when we do what we can do, it's something and, and it might work for a little bit of time, but God, at the end of the day, like Matt said earlier, God, only you can satisfy. So Lord, would you satisfy those longings inside each and every one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. This morning, I want to talk to you about dealing with distress. Dealing with distress. Because David, as we read in the scripture, is greatly distressed. Now, it's easy to understand his distress because his life is, is in danger at this point. His life is in jeopardy. They're talking about stoning him. Like, hey, let's, let's kill this guy. He got our families taken away from us. But even if you go beyond that, like even removing yourself from the immediacy of of this, this mob essentially forming around David and you zoom out just a little bit. Here's a man who at 13, 14, 15 years old is anointed to be the next king. 
There's hope and there's promise and there's a destiny and there's a future upon him. But for years, he's been running and hiding, just trying to stay one step ahead of Saul as Saul has sought nothing more than to kill David. And, and there are times where when you read the Psalms, you get a glimpse into David's heart and into his, not just his thought process, not just the things that he's thinking, but the things that he's feeling. Like if you've ever felt like your life was this emotional roller coaster, I would encourage you just, just even if you haven't read with us to this point, just start reading now as we start getting into the life of David and some of the Psalms that he writes, because this dude was a mess. He was, he was a wreck. His life was emotional roller coaster. In one Psalm, he's talking about, God, my enemies are surrounding me and they, they're trying to kill me. And, and, and he says, Sheol has surrounded me. Death has surrounded me. The tomb is welcoming me. And then in the very next Psalm, it's God, you are my refuge and you are my strength. And I lift up to my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And it's always like this, this up and this down. And he's so emotional. Pastor Angel had preached a message a while ago on David's diagnosis, how for her as a mental health practitioner, if David were to come in her office, like David, yes, I hear you. I see you. There's some things that we have to work through. How you know there's some things that we have to work through? I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It was, a, it was a great message, but David's on this emotional roller coaster where now he's been kicked out of his homeland. His own people don't want him. His friends and his family, the ones who, who if anybody should have had his back while Saul was chasing him, seem to have turned their back on David. So what does David do? He goes down into the enemy's camp. And he makes friends with the enemy, the people that he shouldn't be making friends with, and yet they don't want him. So here he is, stuck in the middle, and he's like, I can't go home because my family doesn't want me, and I can't go to the enemy because the enemy doesn't want me, and I have nobody except for these 600 misfits with me that are always complaining and always bickering and always just looking to hurt somebody. Like, all they want to do is fight all of the time, and now we get back from this battle that we were supposed to go into and hopefully get some plunder and appease my men, and now not only do we not have plunder, but our things have been plundered from us. Now you want to talk about distress. You want to talk about loneliness. You want to talk about literally having nobody to turn to. What does David do? The Bible tells us that he finds strength in the Lord. How do we deal with distress? How do we deal with distress? Well, what is distress? Here's the definition of distress. Distress is pain or suffering affecting the body, a bodily part, or the mind. It's a pain that because we are three-part beings, body, soul, spirit, doesn't just affect one part, but literally affects every part of our being. If you've ever been there, you understand that. You wear your stress. You carry your stress around with you. you. You are anxious in your thoughts, but it doesn't just stay in your thoughts because then your back starts to tighten up. 
And then your neck starts to tighten up and then you start losing sleep and then you can't concentrate and then you start having headaches and all of these physical symptoms that you are, you are experiencing. Now you go to the, the doctor and they're prescribing you medication, but then you're going to a, a, a counselor and they're prescribing you medication and you've got all of these different people telling you to take all of these different things to meet all of these different needs when in reality, the one thing that we need is just to remove the distress. How do, we, how do we deal with it though? How do we deal with those pains that we all understand, that we all go through, that we all find? Some of us self-medicate. What is that? It's, it's finding other things to either take my mind off of it, to numb myself from it, like, I just don't want to feel this. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to worry about this. So, so some of us, we turn maybe to alcohol. Some of us, maybe we turn to drugs. Some of us turn to work. We self-medicate. When there are problems going on at home, men typically will tend to, to, to find ourselves at work for long hours. Why? Because I just don't want to go home and deal with that. We find ourselves trying to meet these needs with all of these external things. Hobbies, shopping. We turn to all of these other things to, to just distract us. And that's all it is. It's just a temporary fix, a temporary distraction. As long as I'm not thinking about this, as long as I'm not worrying about that, as long as I'm not feeling this, if I can introduce something to, to just take that away temporarily, and that's all it is, is, is a temporary Band-Aid. See, we have to learn to deal with distress because distress is a part of life. Like we will all go through seasons. The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. That, that there are gonna be hard times that we go through because we are fallen people living in a fallen world surrounded by other fallen broken people. Yeah. And anytime that is, your, that is your starting point, like that is go of your monopoly, there, there is no passing go. There is no collecting $200. There is no getting to park place or bar boardwalk. You're stuck on Baltic. Like that's... That's the reality of, of the game that we've entered into and that's what we've been born into. But thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ. Thank God we don't have to, we don't have to stay there even as David didn't stay there. How did David respond? I wanna give you four things in very, very simply just four words. Four words today that will help you deal with distress. If you're not taking notes, this would be a good message to take notes for. Because this isn't just, this isn't just when, you're, when you're in those situations, but these are even just good guidelines and in, in, in markers for our lives. Four things that, that we need to have, four things that we need to do in our lives. The first one is this. The first thing that David did is he looked. If you're dealing with the stress today, the first thing that you need to do is look. What does that mean, Pastor John? It means to evaluate the things that you're looking at. The Bible says in verse six that David found strength in the Lord his God, right? We, we understand that. And I want you to know today that you can be distressed and in God at the same time. I feel like there's this, this, this connotation or this belief, this stigma with depression, with anxiety, with, with distress, 
that if we are experiencing any of those things, then, then we've done something wrong and God has left us and, and we've backslidden. That's not, that's not necessarily the truth. Now, could there have been things that as we step away from God that we do and we're reaping the consequences of some of those actions? Absolutely. But as you read scripture, there are people who are right in the middle of God's will for their, for their lives and, and, and taking no part in sin and are still dealing with distress. David here is dealing with distress. Elijah, first Kings, after he calls down fire from heaven, deals with distress to the point where he tells God, God, I'm tired of living. God, just take me now. God, I'm, I, I literally don't want to go another day. Elijah dealt with distress. Job dealt with distress. Job, everything was taken from him. And yet, what does he say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's sitting there literally in a scrap heap, peeling boils and scraping boils off of his skin because that's the situation. He finds himself in Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood as he prayed to the father, Lord, take this cup from me. See, these men were in, in, in the will of God for their lives and yet they are still dealing with distress. Now, here's what I want you to know. Yes, you can deal with distress and being God at the same time, but what these men show us is they didn't stay there. There is distress. There is anxiety, there are worries, there are concerns, there are things that we deal with as, as a part of just going through life. But what the Bible shows us is that that is not the place to stay. Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Elijah got himself up and ate the cake that the, the angel had made. I believe it was a Chipotle burrito, but that's another story for another day. But he he eats what the angel had provided and he goes into this cave and it's in this cave that he hears the still small voice. Joe, blessed be the name of the Lord. David, he's greatly distressed because the men want to stone him, but yet he finds strength in the Lord his God. So what does, what does he do? Let's continue our story. Verse number seven. David says to Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod. What is the ephod? It was essentially the it's like the apron that the high priest would wear as he went into the tabernacle to minister to the Lord in God's presence. So he says, bring me the, the ephod. So Abiathar brought it. Then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. What's interesting to me here is that David in his distress finds strength in God, but he calls upon God and he turns his attention back to God. God, what do you want me to do? God, should I chase after them? God, should I, should I stay here? Should I just run away from my men? Should I go hide in the cave where I wrote the last Psalm? Like, what do you want me to do at this point? Should I chase after these raiders? And God says, yes, chase after them because I'll give you victory over them. Here's what's interesting. We see David calling out to God in 1 Samuel chapter 30. We see Psalms that were written during this time and shortly after this time. But for 16 months, David lived among the Philistines, with the Philistines, fought with the Philistines. We never once in that time, that year and a half that David was there, we never once see a prayer of David. We never once read a Psalm of David. We never once see, see David calling out to the Lord, his God, or finding strength 
in the Lord. We, we don't see any of that. And yet here David is later in this moment of great distress calling upon God. He looks to the Lord. The question that you and I have to ask ourselves when we're going through seasons of distress and trials and tribulations is what are we looking to? What are we looking at? What is our gaze fixed on? See, David, it would have been better to call for the ephod and ask God's direction before you went down to the Philistines. It would have been better to pray and say, God, what do you want me to do right now? But he didn't. What did he do? He relied on his own way of thinking. If we go back just a few chapters, 1 Samuel chapter 27 says that David kept thinking to himself. Someday Saul is going to get me. Now, here's the thing. David, how many times up until this point has God delivered you from Saul? How many times has God given you the escape route when Saul was right on your heels? What now all of a sudden has changed? Has God changed? No, God hasn't changed. Your perspective and your focus has changed, David. So someday Saul's going to get me. The best thing that I can do is escape to the enemy. <laughs> the best thing that I can do is go live like the world. I'm just, I'm just really distressed right now. So the best thing that I can do is go find somebody to sleep with to make me feel good. I have so much anxiety right now that the best thing for me to do is call my old buddies and go back to the bar the best thing for me to do. David thought the best, David really thought that the best thing for him to do was to go live with the Philistines. As we read that today and it's like, David, what were you thinking? But how many times if you and I were to just stop and look back on the course of our lives, would we say, John, what were you thinking? Right, like you really thought that that was the best thing to do? You really thought that that was going to work out for you, but that's what David does. He, he thinks to himself, he's focused on his, on his problems. He's not looking to the Lord. He's looking inward. He, he's looking to his feelings. He's looking to his thoughts. He's looking to his friends. He's looking to his problems and his circumstances rather than looking to God. Some of us today, we just need a new perspective. We need to change what we're looking at. Stop looking to all of these other things and start looking to the, to the only source of peace that you can find, and that's in Jesus Christ. Several years ago, me and my dad were in, we were in Arizona. We had gone down there for a conference with the staff, and we, we had had an invite to visit the Havasupai people in Arizona. Now, if you don't know the Havasupai people, they uh, are, are a small community of native people that live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And, and it's this, this little village. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of tourists that go through there during the summer months because if, if you know Havasu Falls or if you've heard of Havasu Falls, I've got a picture of the waterfalls. You guys can, can put that picture up there. But this is, this is Havasu Falls. It's in the middle of the Grand Canyon and there's just this, this waterfall that falls into this, this crystal clear and it's got the prettiest bluish tint to it because of all of the minerals that it picks up from the canyon. And so, so there's a lot of tourists that go through during the summertime, but during the rest of the year, it's just this small community of people that live 
among themselves and by themselves. And they had invited us to come down. And the thing about getting down there is it's a, an eight and a half mile hike down the Grand Canyon to where they live. Now, it's one thing to hike down a canyon, right? Like, but you want hike eight and a half miles out of the canyon. So we go down there for a day and we hang out with them. And when it came time to leave, it was like, okay, so how are we getting ourselves out of here? Because I'm not about this hike. And what they do is they have a helicopter that comes in once a day. And this helicopter flies in from outside the canyon, flies in and it drops off the mail, it drops off groceries, it drops off every, all the supplies that they need. And it takes, sometimes it takes people back. We just happen to be some of those people. And so we get on the helicopter and as we get on the helicopter, dad's like, you sit in the front. And so I'm sitting in the front. Of course, I'm gonna take out my phone and record a video. So I recorded a video. And I wanna, I wanna play this video for you because when you're in the middle of this canyon and you look around you, all you can see for for hundreds of feet into the air is the walls of the canyon. And it's a small community. There's really nothing there. And when you get down there, you are, you are so enclosed by the walls of this canyon. And we took off and I'm like, holy cow, look at the Grand Canyon and look at the, look at the trees and look at the, the houses and look at you know, all of the, the different things that are going on. And, and was so focused on my camera and what was going on beneath me and below me and was kind of trying to, to take a picture of that. Don't mind the camera work. I quickly realized that you can't see out that window and then I go back to the front. <laughs> but I'm recording and I'm like, holy cow, we're in the Grand Canyon. And as the helicopter begins to get higher and higher and higher, I realized that we weren't in the Grand Canyon. We were in one of the smallest little slivers that was within a canyon that was within the Grand Canyon. And as you got higher and higher, you begin to see things that otherwise you couldn't see. And I thought I was in the Grand Canyon until we got over that first rise. And I realized that there is so much more going on here that I just don't have the perspective to see. And I share that with you because I feel like sometimes some of us, we are going through such a low place in our lives. When we look around, all we can see is the trials and the circumstance and the troubles and the distress and the fear and the worry and the anxiety. And it feels like literally there are walls closing in around us. Have you ever been there? Okay, I'm not the only one. It feels like there are walls closing in around us. And that's all we can see because that's all we have the ability to look at until we elevate our perspective. And as soon as we're able to elevate our perspective, we can then see that our troubles were not the biggest thing in the equation. The things that we're worrying about are minuscule when compared to the size of our God. The things that we are, are, are being surrounded by are so much smaller if we would just elevate our perspective and stop looking at the problems, but instead start looking to God. Let's continue our story. Verse number nine is where we're gonna pick it up. So God speaks to David, says, go after them. So David and his 600 men set out. They came to the brook Bezor, but 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with 400 men. Along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. And they also gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins. 
For he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and three nights, and before long his strength returned. David says, let's interrogate him. Let's find out who he is and where he's from. To whom do you belong and where do you come from? David asked him. He says, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. He replied, my master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. We were on our way back from raiding the Carathites and the Negev, the territory of Judah and the land of Caleb, and we had just burned Ziklag. What town was David from? Ziklag. So this is a dude who, like, he was present. He was there. He probably took part. He was on his way back. He got sick. His master left him for dead. Now David's come across him and David formulates a plan. He says he knows where they're going. Verse 15, will you lead me to this band of raiders? David asked and the young man replied. I love this guy's response. He says, if you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, then I'll guide you to them. Like, like, don't kill me and don't give me back to that scumbag and we're good. And so he does, he, he leads David. So, so what's the principle here? See, the first thing that we have to do when we're dealing with distress is we have to look, we have to change our gaze. We have to change what we fix our eyes on. The second thing that we have to do is we have to watch. So let me say watch. Well, what is that? What, what's the difference between looking and watching? You just told me to look, now you're telling me to watch. I don't understand what you're saying. There's a big difference. There's actually a big difference. You can look at something and not watch something. And you can watch something and not be looking for something. See, to look, here's the definition of to look. To look is to turn, turn one's eyes towards something or in a direction in order to see. So it's very passive. It's turning your eyes to see something, turning it in a particular direction. Okay, but what does it mean to watch? Look at what it means to watch. To watch is to look or wait attentively and expectantly. To look attentively and expectantly. How many times do we, like Pastor Kevin said earlier, do we look to God and not expect anything from God? Cast your cares upon the Lord. Okay, sounds good. Here you go, God. And then we expect nothing. And so we take them back with us to watch, to, to give attention and to wait expectantly. Watch for what, Pastor John? Watch for God's provision. Have a keen eye expecting God to come through because that's essentially what God did for David here. This man who, they could have just passed him on the highway. He was nobody. He was a man who was hungry and thirsty. And they could have said, you know what? We're, we're too busy doing something else. We're on a mission here. We got we to gotta get going. Our wives, our kids, everything's been taken from us. Who cares about this guy? But what does David do? He says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Give him some food. Give him... <laughs> Give them some water. David, why? Our wives, we have to catch up to these raiders. Just, just wait. Let's just watch. He gives them food and he says, where do you come from? Who are you? Well, I just came back from burning Ziklag. Hmm. Interesting. Weird. Has God ever provided for you? And you're just like, hmm. Interesting. Weird. It's weird the way that God does that sometimes, right? Like, I wouldn't have anticipated that, God. I wouldn't have expected you to come through in that particular way. Just, hmm, weird. But God does it. 
And God did it. And he says, do you happen to know where these, these Amalekites went? He's like, yeah, I know exactly where they went. Hmm, interesting, weird. Could you show us where they went? Yeah, I could show you exactly where they're at right now. Hmm, interesting, weird. What would it take for you to do that? Just don't give me back to that scumbag deal. See, he was, he was looking to God first, but then he was watching for God to move. That, a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about, in the book of Ruth, we talked about God's providence, God's provision, God's ability to use natural events to bring about a supernatural result. That sometimes God moves miraculously and he introduces supernatural into the natural because that's who God is. But God is also able to direct and to orchestrate and to weave together providentially on your behalf and on my behalf. What we have to understand is is in those times of distress, no matter what's been taken from us, no matter what we're struggling with, no matter what we're dealing with, God's provision is always available. God's provision is always there. Well, the enemy's stolen my joy. Okay, well, watch for how God's gonna restore that. What opportunity has he given you today to find joy in him? Well, he's stolen my peace, okay. Watch how God is going to move on your behalf to bring about an opportunity for you to be at peace in him. Well, God, you you don't understand what's been taken from me. You're right, I don't. But God does. He knows, he sees it all. He was there and he can move on your behalf as well if you would simply look to him and watch for him to move. Psalm 120 verse one. David writes, I took my troubles to the Lord. I cried out to him and he what? He answered my prayer. What is he doing? He's waiting, he's watching, he's expecting, he's anticipating. When you go to God, there should be a sense of anticipation and expectancy in your heart for God to move. After you make your request known to God, you should go from there and just every every situation and every conversation and every opportunity, it should just be like, okay, is this, is this how God's gonna do it? Is this how God's gonna move? Is this how God's gonna bring me joy? Is this how God's gonna restore my peace? Is this how God's gonna... There should be an expectancy in your heart after you bring these things to God. So we have to look, number one, we have to direct our attention, we have to direct our eyes, we have to fix our eyes upon him. Number two, we have to watch. We have to wait, we have to look expectantly and with anticipation. And the third thing that we have to do is we have to recover. That's what David does next. This Egyptian man, he leads them to where these Amalekites are, says that David sees them spread out in this field and they're singing and dancing because of all the plunder that they have taken, not just from Ziklag, but remember they raided other towns as well. So they have all of this plunder and they're throwing this party in this valley and and David goes in, he fights against them. The Bible tells us from that evening until the next night. So this is is a fight. This is a battle, this is a war. It's not just over quick, like they're, they're getting after it. For 24 hours, they're fighting. Verse 18 is where we're gonna pick up our story today says this, it says that David got back everything. Somebody say everything. David got back everything that the Amalekites had taken and he rescued his two wives. Verse 19, nothing was missing, small 
or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. The New King James Version there says, David recovered it all. Everything that had been taken. And I love that it points out whether it was small or great. Whether it was, it was seemingly meaningless or it was of great importance. Every little thing that had been taken was restored back, not just to David, but to all of David's men as well. God is a God that cares for you so much that even the small things that the enemy has taken from you, God wants to restore. Even the things that you forgot about, God wants to restore. Even the things that you've buried in your past that you didn't even know were there, God wants to restore. God can do it and he wants to do it if we would simply look to him and watch for him to move. How was, able, how, how was David able to, to recover this? How was David able to restore all of this? How was David able to, to walk in this victory? Very, very simply, David was able to recover by being obedient to God's direction and walking in God's provision. God, what do you want me to do? This is what I want you to do. Okay, then that's what I'm going to do. How many times do we try and take back something that's been stolen from us our own way? My joy has been stolen, so I'm going to go find it somewhere else. And God's like, no, 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 no. Like, that's not, that's not where you're going to, to find it. This has been taken from me, so I'm going to go take from somebody else. No, 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 no. That's not the way to do this. We have to walk being obedient to God's word and walk in God's provision as he makes those available to us. Everything, small or great, big, doesn't matter, son, daughter, every man, everything that was taken from them was restored, was recovered. God is able to do it if we would watch, expect, and then receive it. Had somebody come to me a few years ago at church. They came to me and said, Pastor John, I'm really just, I'm really discouraged. I'm just depressed. It's like, I'm sorry. Tell me what's going on. I just, I, I don't have any friends. I have nobody that I can call. I have nobody that I can talk to. I just feel like I'm alone all the time. I'm so by myself. And it's just, it's depressing. Like, man, I'm, I'm sorry you're going through that. Nobody should, that's why we're here. We want to get you connected. We're here to be in community. You weren't created to do life alone, told all the things. And then you should think about attending this small group. Well, why would I do that? <laughs> well, you're looking for friends, right? Well, yeah, I don't have anybody. Okay, well, let's start with a small group. So they went to the small group for a couple weeks, didn't see him for a couple weeks in church, finally saw him again on a Sunday and said, hey, how's that small group going? He said, Pastor John, I can't. I can't go, I can't go back. I'm, I'm not going back to that small group. I'm like, oh no, what happened? Like, was the food bad? What? <laughs> it, like, was there no dessert, no ice cream with the brownies? Tell me what's going on. Why are you not going back to this small group? And they said, well, it just like from the time I got there to the time I left, people, they, they just all wanted to talk to me. And they just wouldn't stop asking me questions. 
And then this one person asked me to coffee and then texted me afterwards asking if I wanted to get coffee the next day. And they just won't stop texting me trying to get coffee. Pastor John, there's no way I'm going back to that small group. Listen, I know sometimes you think I make up stories for effect. This 100%, like I'm not even, I'm not elaborating. I'm not expanding. I am giving you direct quotes of this conversation that I had with this individual whom I still love. But in the moment, I just like, have you ever had like one of those facepalm moments? You know, facepalm, like we just. So you are so depressed because you have nobody in your life who cares about you. You have nobody to be in relationship with, nobody to talk to. That's correct. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. I, I, I would be too. But here's a group of people so interested in you as an individual that they just want to ask questions to get to know you. And then they have the audacity to invite you to coffee. And you're running from this? What did you think was going to happen? What were you expecting? God's providing, God's making a way. God is literally answering your prayers in this moment and you are rejecting it. And see, we can together as third parties looking in, see the ridiculousness of this individual's response. But the question that we have to, to take from that and not just, not just use it to, to view her situation, but use it to view our situation as well, is God, in what ways have you made provision for me that I have rejected? God, in, in what ways have I cried out to you in my distress? and you've made available, and yet I've chosen deliberately to walk away from. See, it can be recovered. God wants to restore it. I want you to understand that there are times where the enemy comes and he steals just because he's a thief. He kills, he destroys just because that's who he is. But I also want you to, to be careful not to give the devil too much credit here. Because there are things that have been stolen from us, but then there are also things that we have willingly given away. Yes. David, had he, had he sought God from the beginning, even had he sought God when he was given the invitation to go to war against the Israelites, God would have said, no, no, David. <laughs> Don't do that, David. Had David not tried to go to war against Saul, David and his men would have been back at Ziklag and able to protect it. But David in his own thinking decided he better move out without God and ahead of God and without consulting God. And he got himself into this situation. There are times where the enemy steals and there are times where we just give him things. Grew up in Albuquerque and I remember my dad would always tell us, don't leave your bikes in the front yard because they're going to get stolen. 
When you're done riding your bike, you need to bring it in the garage, you need to put it in the backyard, you need to put it away somewhere safe. Every day, dad would get home and what was there to greet him in the front yard? My bike. John, you need to get your bike, bring it in the garage, put it in the backyard. Every day, don't leave your bike outside. Still did. I remember one day, I was riding my bike with some friends and I left my bike in the front yard, I went inside. I came out a few hours later, my bike was gone. Have you ever had a bike stolen? Have you ever had anything stolen from you? Have you ever had your car broken into? Isn't that like one of the most violating? You just feel violated. Like, oh, why would you? That was my bike. You stole a kid's bike. Who steals a kid's bike? And I went inside and I found my dad. I was like, Dad, somebody took my bike. We got to go get my bike back. He's like, well, why did you leave it outside? I was like, Dad, this is not the time. My bike is gone. We need to call the cops. We need to file a report. We need to get somebody on this. We need to go find this guy. So my dad's like, well, what do you think that they're going to do? He's like, I don't know. Can we just, let's make flyers. Let's start there. We can go door to door in the neighborhood, ask him if their punk kids stole my bike. And he's like, well, you really think you're going to find your bike that way? I don't know, dad. All I know is my bike is gone and I want it back. And he says, all right, well, let's go. He says, let's just go, let's go for a walk. So we go out and we lived in a cul-de-sac. So we walked up one end of the cul-de-sac and we walked back and the whole time he's telling me stuff, I don't know, I wasn't really listening. <laughs> Something about I told you, you know, the reason I tell you these things for your own good, not to just, you know, one of those dad talks. And we get back to the house and he goes, hey, the, I left something in my, in my truck. Can you just go, go grab something out of my truck? I don't remember what it was, but I go to the truck and I open the bed of the truck. There was my bike. It's like, you stole my bike. <laughs> and what did he, being, being a good dad that he is, what did he do? He says, the reason I did this is to teach you what? A lesson. You all know, you've been there. Did this to teach you a lesson. I've told you with my words not to leave your bike outside. Somebody was going to take it. You weren't getting the point then. So hopefully this will communicate what you weren't able to hear in the first place. You can't just willingly leave this stuff out because somebody will come and take it. In our lives, I feel like we are too... We're too flippant, you know, when the Bible says to, to be vigilant because your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. We come home with our joy and our peace and our purity and our, our marriage and all of, all of these things, our destiny, our purpose, our innocence. We come home every day and we just leave it there in the front yard and it's like, Mr. Devil, if you want to take it, I'll just leave it out here for you to take. We have this idea that somehow he's breaking into our room in the middle of the night to steal all of these things from us. When in reality, what I've found is most of the things that are in the enemy's camp that belong to me are not there because he broke in in the middle of the night, but they're there because I left him out in the yard when I shouldn't have. We need to do a better job of protecting those things. But even when they're gone, whether we give them up, whether we're careless with them or whether they've been stolen from the enemy, what we need to understand is we serve a God who is able to restore. Big or small, it doesn't matter. 
God is able to restore it. So today, if you're here and you're distressed because you've lost your joy, if you're, if you're distressed because you've lost peace in your mind or peace in your home, maybe you're a young person here and you've, and you've willingly given up your purity, God wants to restore that. You've been, you've been living contrary to God's word and feel like your purpose is gone and the enemy has stolen it. God wants to and can restore. We have to look, we have to watch, we have to recover. And then the last thing that we see in, in this story is we have to give. We have to give. If we, if we finish this story, we're gonna finish in verse 21. David gets everything and it says that then he returned to the brook he met up with the 200 men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go with him. They went out to meet David and his men and David greeted them joyfully and look at how his misfits responded. But some evil troublemakers among David's men said they didn't go with us so they can't have any of the plunder that we recovered. Give them their wives, give them their children, but don't give them anything else. Tell them to be gone. But David said, no, my brothers, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. Who gave it to them? We lost it. It was taken from us, but the Lord has given it back. And not just what we lost, because remember, the Amalekites didn't just raid Ziklag, but they had other, raided other villages as well. Because God, when, when, when God restores, he doesn't, he doesn't just give back, but he always adds to. He says, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe. He's helped us defeat this band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike, those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. David's generosity with what God had provided didn't end there because he went back to Ziklag and it says that then he sent gifts into the towns in Judah. To these different towns, he sent them and said, here's what the Lord has provided. This is a gift for you. What I want you to, to know and what I want you to walk away with is when God brings the restoration, when God returns the joy to your life and the joy to your heart, when you're walking in peace again, when you're walking in the fullness of his purpose for your life, when you're walking in what he has provided for you, remember to walk forward from there with a heart of generosity. Not just with the extra stuff that God has given you, but generous in your words, generous with your time, generous with your talents, generous to let others know who are where you were, that if you would look to God, if you would watch for him to move, if you would recover what's been taken and then live lives open-handed, God will be able to continue to lead you and guide you if you would be obedient to his word and obedient to his direction and if you would walk in the provision of God. Let us not be selfish with the blessings that God's given us. Let us not be, be selfish with the lessons that we've learned. Let us not be selfish with the revelation that he's departed 
or deposited, excuse me, in our hearts. But let's give those generously because we want others to live lives in the fullness of what God has for them too. We want others to be able to recover what's been taken from them. We want others to walk in the provision that God's made available. We want others to to fix their eyes, to elevate their perspective, to see beyond the walls that are closing in and see a God that is so much bigger than that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand with me this morning. If you're here today and you would be honest enough just to say, Pastor John, that message was for me. I've been dealing with some distress in my heart, some fear, some anxiety, some worry. I've allowed those things to creep in. And that video in that helicopter where those walls are right there, that's what it feels like in my life right now. If, if you would do me a favor, if you would just, just lift your hand, just say, Pastor John, that's me. Thank you so much. Hands all over the way. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Keep them up high. Here's what I want you to do. If you're standing next to somebody with their hand raised, would you do me a favor and just just lean over and put your hand on their shoulder. We're just going to pray for each other today. The Bible says that when one part of the body hurts, that we all hurt. Just want to make sure that everybody who needs prayer is getting prayer today. I'm going to pray for us as we go. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you're attentive to us. We thank you that, that even as, as David in the Psalms so often writes that he, he called upon the name of the Lord and you answered. Lord, it doesn't end when we call upon you, but we can wait and we can watch expectantly knowing that you are going to answer. And Lord, today for those of us that, that have walked into this place feeling distressed and feeling anxious and and feeling just so full of fear and worry and doubt and the cares of this world are closing in around us. God, I pray today, Lord, that as they they look to you, as they fix their eyes upon you, Lord, that you would elevate their perspective and help them to be able to see beyond the immediacy of their circumstances, to see a God who is there with them and who loves them and created them and, and is walking alongside them and wants to lead them and guide them into the fullness of what you have for us. God, help us to to look to you, not to our problems, not to ourselves. God, that we wouldn't think to ourselves as David did, but God, that we would seek your face, that we would seek your will and submit ourselves to your direction. God, help us to watch expectantly. God, thank you that you are a God of restoration. I pray for everyone who has had something taken from them, who has, who has given something up. God, I pray that today, I pray that as they go from this place this morning, Lord, that you would begin to restore what has been lost. God, even in this moment right now, I pray for peace in minds. I pray for joy in hearts. God, I pray for restoration in relationships. God, I thank you, Lord, that you're able to bring it all back, big or small. Lord, as you do, may we walk forward generously, recognizing that everything we have is because the Lord has given it to us. Everything that's been restored is not a result of our actions or our attitudes or our ability to pull ourselves out of it. But God, what we have is simply because you've given it to us. It's because you've restored it. You've helped us recover it. So Lord, today, I pray that you would help us to walk forward generously, giving to those around us 
as well. As we've received joy, may we be distributors of joy. As we've received peace, may we be vessels of peace, giving what you've given to us. Lord, we thank you and we love you. Encourage us today, challenge us today, but most of all, change us into your image today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you this morning. You may be dismissed. Love you, church. See you guys next Sunday.